Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract. Today, uh, what a guest, Josh Burson, who is an analyst, author, educator, and a thought leader who focuses on the global talent market and the challenges and trends impacting business workforces around the world. He has studied the world of work, HR, leadership practices, and the broad talent technology market for years. He's often cited, I cite him, as one of the leading HR and workplace industry analysts in the world. Josh also founded Burson & Associates in 2001 to provide research and advisory services focused on corporate learning, leadership, etc., and he eventually sold that company to Deloitte in 2012. Most recently, Josh launched the Josh Burson Academy, the world's first global development academy for HR and talent professionals at all levels and across all industries. He serves as the academy's dean. He guides its program offering, offerings and interacts with members and shares relevant research and insights to help HR and talent professionals stay current on the trends and practices needed to drive, drive sorry, success in the modern world of work. His latest book is Irresistible, cue the music, The Seven Secrets of the World's Most Enduring Employee-Focused Organizations, which we're going to talk about today, good friend Josh. Thanks for being here. First question, though, it's tangential but related. You and I kind of are similar in the fact that we we have a bone to pick, so to say, with the term employee engagement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what bugs you about that? And I know we'll lead and segue into yeah. sort of your more legendary irresistible term, but what gets you gnawed, uh, gnawing on uh, the leather when it comes to employee engagement? Well, Dan, it's my honor to be on this podcast with you, by the way, I really have respected you for many, many years <clears throat> and, and enjoyed learning from you. I did not know anything about HR when I became an analyst 25 years ago. And somebody told me that employee engagement was completely figured out already. There was no reason to do any research on it. All I needed to do was read the Gallup book and I was yeah. done. Right. And I talked to the woman who told me that and I said, well, that may be true. I've read all this stuff. But let's do some research anyway. And of course, what we found out was that having a best friend at work was not the only thing that mattered. Um, to witness the explosion of employee experience, well-being, all of the stuff that's happened since then. There's hundreds or really dozens of things that matter to employees. And we ended up building a framework, which we called Simply Resistible, which I later turned into this book. The other thing that I was very frustrated about <clears throat> in employee experience at the time is that it was a once a year project, not very, or employee engagement rather, not very actionable um, and, um, you know, not really focused on the business itself, but really focused on these IO psychology theoretical constructs. And what companies used to say is, well, last year our engagement level was 3.6. This year it's 3.65. So we're cool. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> and I thought, that's ridiculous. You should be striving for higher and higher and higher and higher. You should always be trying to get better. And that was where the irresistible idea came from. So I challenged this uh, woman who was working for me with these ideas. She thought I was nuts. But eventually we did the research and we found out that, you know, it's a very complicated uh, equation and, and uh, engagement doesn't really, you know, solve it. 
Love it. Well, uh, not just in the book, but uh, in your previous dealings and all things from a research perspective, you have um, legendarily coined the term irresistible and you've aligned it with essentially kind of four pillars or parts. So you've got uh, mission, uh, productivity, engagement and happiness. So how how does irresist how does an organization who defines itself as irresistible, how do they show those four key pillars that you've defined? Well, um, you know, if you look at, first of all, what the, the way the book was written, and it did take a long time, there were many years of research, is that uh, I went through thousands and thousands of glass door ratings and evaluated the, you know, highest performing companies on the various glass door measures in different industries, different geographies, different company sizes, looked at the list, and a lot of them I knew, or I had done research with or interviewed with, some of them not. And we kind of looked at what they had done that was different. And what we found out is that the way the Glassdoor rating works, it's a bell curve. And the ones on the right are way ahead of the ones in the rest of the distribution. Um, so there's about 8 to 10% of companies that are really outperforming their peers. But in every single industry, there's 8 to 10%. For some reason, there's no one industry that is just way better to work for than any other industry. Believe it or not, that's mostly true. So um, so that was, you know, really what started this. Now, if you look at things like mission and purpose and work design and happiness, those irresistible companies do this by nature. They, through their own history, through their own founders, through their understandings of their business, they have come to the conclusion that in order to deliver on the mission or purpose or product or service that they want to deliver to the market, they have to take care of their employees. And in fact, many of them eventually conclude that taking care of their employees is the most important thing they do. Workday operates that way. Microsoft operates that way. LinkedIn operates that way. Many companies philosophically at the very senior levels will take care of their employees first because they know their employees will take care of the shareholders and everybody else. <clears throat> and that creates this focus in these different areas. And the HR people and the other you know, management disciplines um, align with that. Um, and the results are um, happy employees, productive employees, high retention, lots of innovation, risk-taking, creativity, things that you always want to have happen but are very hard to do um, you know, are, are basically what, what happens when you, when you manage the company this way. So maybe just to follow up on that, like for a guy like you who's been in this um, for a few decades now and and done not just laudable work, but extraordinary work unpacking and unearthing what it takes to be an irresistible company, if you will. Why does it still seem like it's a bit like nails on a chalkboard? Why is it that, you know, there aren't uh, it's not pervasive and consistent. You know, shouldn't it yeah. be at this point in our careers, Josh, uh, a little more prevalent than what we see? Well, you know, that's a really good question, Dan. So right now we've got the Twitter thing going on with Elon Musk, you know, kind of running rampant over there. We just recently had Boeing, which is one of the most highly esteemed companies in the world, have the problems with the 737. Um, I think what happens is that management philosophies are unevenly distributed, is distributed. Some people grow up 
understanding this idea of taking care and developing people. It's, it's their nature. It's the way they worked. It's the way they live. It's their family and the companies that they worked for. Some people know. Some people are hard-nosed financial people, business people, engineers, scientists, whatever. They, they haven't you know, maybe come to the realization that the people stuff is so important. They reach high levels of the organization and bad things sometimes happen. Enron, um, and there is, you know, some amount of power corrupts that goes on in companies. When people reach very high levels and they have access to lots of money, they sometimes do dysfunctional things. And so we have to be in some sense the conscience for this and watch for it and try to educate these senior people that, you know, there's a human centered way of doing this and this, you know, hard nosed rough and tumble up or out idea that you want to embrace might be okay for a while, but over a number of years, it won't necessarily pay off. And every company that has been an up or out, very hard place to work, and I've worked for some of them, by the way, once they fall on hard times, they're not enduring anymore. And that's why I use the word enduring on the title is that, you know, my um, lens for, for this, you know, these companies is you can take any company that just had a high stock price go up and they may be a horrible place to work, but they had the right product at the right time and everybody just bought it. Right. But then all of a sudden there's an upset, there's a competitor, there's a slowdown or whatever. Boom, the company falls apart. They can't you know, repair themselves. So this is about building an enduring organization and, um, and building trust and commitment within the people that run the company. By the way, the company is the people. The company yes. is not the management. That's the other thing I like to remind people is um, people don't come to your job. You can't just replace them like parts like we used to in the old industrial age. Every human being brings and adds unique value and creative ideas, and you want them to do that. Um, and they're not replaceable parts. Um, and when you pay them, you're really investing in them. So these ideas that I go through all the time with people um, are not well known by people that haven't worked in HR or haven't been in management a lot, or maybe just didn't work in companies that operated this way. Hmm. That's so unfortunately, I'm sorry, this is going to always be true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose in, in one way, it also you know keeps you and I employed in certain organizations to help out. So there's that too. So there's a, there's a selfish bit. Okay. So in the book, In Irresistible, there are seven secrets, seven kind of pillars, as you've described. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to get into a few of these. The first of which is actually secret number two, which is titled Work Not Jobs. And, and in the book, you write, um, we've moved from an economy uh, where your employer defines your career to one where your skills, your experience and ambition drives the success. So let's unpack that line and actually what you're getting at with this whole work not jobs theory, Josh. Sure. Well, my um, history in the job market starts in 1978 when you got out of college, you took a job and you just stayed in one company most of your career. And if you moved around too much, you were considered to be a job hopper and nobody wanted to hire you. Right. Um, and the company took care of you, more or less, as long as you could hang in there and stick around. Um, and then came then along came LinkedIn and Monster.com and later Indeed. And all of a sudden people said, hey, it's pretty easy. I don't have to send a resume by mail. I can find a job online. So maybe it's okay to jump around a little bit. And so we started this you know, much, much more um, candidate-centric job market where people could move from company to company. 
And lo and behold, once that started, companies started to say, well, that's great that you've worked at IBM. Uh, what did you learn there? I don't really care what your job was there. I want to know what you learned because I'm getting resumes from other people too. And we moved slowly to this world of hiring and managing people based on their experiences, not the job title they had or the job role they had and their skills. And that's what's going on now is remote moving to the skills. And, and the reason for that is because of chapter one, which is the hierarchies of companies have been broken down. It used to be when I worked at IBM, um, I was a systems engineer and a systems engineer was a job with a level that worked its way up to different levels in the sales organization at IBM. It was very, very clearly defined. Um, and you went into that job as if you were a part being put into a container and you did the job. And if you did well, you might get promoted. If not, you'd be stuck there. Yeah. And that's just not the way it works anymore. So, so every time a company has a reorg or a new business uh, to go into or a product enhancement or a new idea, they've got to get people to work on it. And if they're stuck in these jobs, they won't come over and work on these other things. So the job market of today is people working on multiple projects, people working on teams, uh, their job title, not necessarily reflecting that much about the specific work they do. Um, and so, um, you know, we have to define ourselves around the work, not the job itself. Because what happened in the old model is if I was locked into this job, my number one goal was to get promoted because I had to get to the next level in order to make more money or to create more authority. There, it was very hard to move across from side to side. Um, so, you know, and then of course I had six and a half years at Deloitte and I witnessed this firsthand where nobody has a job. Everybody is a fungible resource that can work on anything at any time. You might have a little bit of a level, but you really don't have a job. It's like, you're just a consultant and we need you to work on this thing. And do you know how to do it or not? Because if you don't, we're not going to let you work on that. Well, you can find something else to do. Mm. Um, and that actually worked really well in consulting and companies are becoming more and more like consulting firms every day. What, what do you think? Like, so I go back, you know, I'm uh, of a certain vintage like you. And uh, I remember unnamed companies that were making gobs of money on the definition of job families, job descriptions, you know, job titling, and that, that everything went along with that. And so where's the HR industry, the people and culture industry from what was and is effectively a very um, archaic method in which to sort of saddle employees into yet here we are in this uh, transition if not transformation josh on the skills economy or the skills-based ethos inside an organization you're exactly right dan it is a transformation that is in the middle of happening um i was at a conference i was at the workday user conference in europe a couple of weeks ago i was doing a skills workshop for a bunch of companies and the first question somebody asked was What's the difference between a skill and a competency? Oh, wow. I said, all right, well, let's just deal with that because we need to deal with this issue. And I said, if you remember what competencies were, you picked them out of a book and you put them onto a job description. Exactly. Skills are something completely different. There's hundreds of thousands of skills. They're changing all the time. They're affiliated with jobs in very um, different ways. And so we're moving to a model where, which is, and again, much more like professional services, where everybody's job is really defined by the work, the projects, the tasks, their experience, and their skills. And the company has to be 
be able to take advantage of that by moving people around and finding people with these skills quickly when they need them. Mm-hmm. And that's why talent marketplaces and skills clouds are so hot. Now, I wouldn't say anybody's quite figured this out yet, but a lot of companies are working on it very, very hard and they're becoming much more dynamic and they're becoming much more agile, much more productive and much more responsive. So this yeah. is where this is going. The I think the ontology of the skills-based ecosystem is going to become so important inside of that talent marketplace. Uh, and I'm with you. I don't think anyone's actually cracked the code per se, and we are in a transition. But related to, I would say, your notion of um, work, not jobs, and a skills ontology is secret number five, um, growth, not promotion, as a kind of learning strategy. So in it, you you suggest the the learning curve is the earning curve and i know you've written that before but i love the line but this this uh curve this earning curve keeps moving so how and where are we at with sort of secret number 5 growth not promotion well the the big story that i remember when i was writing that chapter was uh i won't mention the name of a company a big company big silicon valley company that had something like 27 job levels And the CHRO said to me, I can't get anybody in the company to take a new assignment unless they get a promotion. Uh. So I can't get anybody to develop themselves because we can't promote everybody every time they move jobs. There aren't enough promotions. And as you know, your real career, not the one that looks like on paper, is, is enhanced by many, many varied, interesting opportunities and projects and skills that come from unexpected places. I mean, my career had no pattern whatsoever. And here I am fairly good at this. Um, And, you know, that is the way careers work. There's a wonderful quote I was just thinking about the other day that I read that said, if you have a clear career plan, it probably belongs to someone else. Because everyone's career, I think it was Carl Jung who actually said something like that. Um, everybody's career goes in different directions based on them and their situation. So we have to, and and you don't have to move up to grow. Microsoft, for example, recently made sort of a blanket statement to employees that if you want to get promoted, don't ask for a promotion, ask for a lateral assignment, because we want you to move around inside of Microsoft and get to know how all the different parts of this company works And if you do that, you will then become more and more valuable to the company in many, many new ways. And that's the right idea, is to encourage people to take assignments or projects or take training or maybe external assignments to grow without necessarily knowing if it's going to result in a promotion, because it will later. But maybe not. uh, that should not be the prime purpose of taking a course or going to some, you know, doing some initiative. That's really the whole idea behind there. And again, I think the market's moved in this direction with these talent marketplace solutions that are kind of sweeping across the HR domain. Reminds me of something that um, I was working on in my own book, um, not to name drop here or anything, and I won't, but it's, uh, I was kind of playing around with words and um, I came up with this. I said uh, something to the effect of Josh, is is your career solely about vertical ambition or perhaps also horizontal ignition? which is kind of a way of saying to what you're getting at, right? It's the yeah. horizontal um, development that we should be thinking about as leaders to push people into other roles, other parts of the organization in gigs in projects in you know, team-based, you know, opportunities that might be short-term lateral moves and assignments. That is where a lot of this transferable skills uh, development and thus to your point of, you know, secret number five here, growth actually occurs. Is that fair? 
Yeah, in fact, there's a really great book I read um, about four or five years ago called Range. I don't remember the author's name. He's he's not really an expert in this domain, but he studied high performing professionals in business, in science, in education, in music, in arts. And what he found is most of them had random careers that jumped all over the place early in their lives. And they were sampling, he calls it sampling, sampling things uh. to figure out what they're good at and what they're going to love. And then later in their career, they just rocketed up to this period of success. My career was like that. I had a lot of jobs that I was kind of not that great at early in my career, but I learned some things and I figured out what I was good at later. And that that is the idea of growth is um, not always worrying about moving up um, because you may end up getting to someplace you don't want to be. <laughs> mm. Well, and thank God that you didn't stay at IBM all those years and because we wouldn't have Josh Burson we know today. You've been sucked into the hierarchy. We don't, no one wants that. Okay. Um, jumping to the last secret of the book, and I'll come back to another one in a second, but there's kind of an alignment here that I see of what we're talking about between, you know, skills and work and, you know, ultimately what is employee experience, not output. So we've talked a few times about the technology and, you know, the talent marketplace. So Tell us a bit about why uh, employee experience is actually trumping output and what we should be looking at, follow-up question, right, uh, on the technology side for this to happen. Well, this is a, I just did a podcast on this. This is a fascinating um, concept. You know, if you push people to do more and more and more and more and more, will they do more and more and more and more? No, they won't. <laughs> at some point, they're going to do less. They're going to make mistakes. They're going to get upset. They're going to quit. That's why the four-day work week is picking up speed. That's mm. why uh, well-being and um, productivity and and uh, engagement and burnout are so high. CEOs, the, if you read the productivity paradox research that came out from Microsoft the other day, uh, 87% of employees feel highly productive. Only 12% of executives believe they are productive. And so there's this old belief left over from the industrial age that if we tighten the screws, the machine will go faster and faster and faster. That's the not that is just not true. We have to look at the actual work experience of people and do they have the tools, the systems, the education, the training, the management support to do their jobs well? And is the job itself designed in a way that they can work at what is called the top of their license. They can do things that they're good at. And it's not a job that requires sweeping the floors or doing stuff that's not really taking advantage of their skills. That is what creates a great company. I just read an article about Starbucks over the weekend. Um, you know, Howard Schultz is struggling with this right now. He's got this company that has proliferated more and more and more products and um, offerings on his employees. And the employees are burned out they're not keeping up. They're forming unions. And he's got a big design problem. And so an employee experience is not an engagement problem. It is a design problem. What can we do to make these jobs better and easier for people and on behalf of who will in turn make them better for employees, for customers? One more point on this. In the book, there's several examples of companies that actually created more slack time or um, less um, fewer people, fewer extra people, what is you know often called in retail, overstocking or overstaffing a store. Yeah. And so there was kind of too many people in the staff, not enough to do. And the, and the profitability went up. 
because these people had more time to clean the place up, talk to customers, create new things, um, and make the company or the store better. So, so employee experience is is really kind of the secret to productivity. Um, you know, and it, it isn't an issue of of just driving output, output, output. Output is obviously something you want to measure, but just pushing for that doesn't necessarily get you in the right place. Tangential, but uh, the fourth of the seven I wanted to, to get to within the book itself, Josh, was number six, uh, purpose, not profits. And you you provide like example after example after example from, from Unilever to Ikea to Patagonia, Tom Shoes, Salesforce, uh, Phillips. Like it's just so well done, uh, a, a chapter given I wrote a book called The Purpose Effect, I, I devoured it. Um, my question for you is related to purpose. It's It seems like it's a, uh, it's a necessary component to the employee experience, to being an irresistible company. But again, similar to my earlier question, it doesn't seem as though everyone's caught on to the point that when you are um, building out a culture, as you just alluded to, where you know you're thinking about the overall well-being, et cetera, of the of the team member. Look, your your profits will go up, your customer service will go up, your SAT will go up, et cetera. Similarly, I think you make the argument that well, if you're not sort of thinking about purpose first and not profits first, you're you're going to run into some of the similar issues that you've alluded to. So tell us a bit about why you were so yeah. adamant that purpose had to be one of your seven irresistible uh, secrets. Sure. You know, I, I didn't, I'm not sort of a, a do-gooder person who thinks everything should be done for charity. There was a purpose, there was a real logic behind that. And what I discovered is that in the highest performing companies, many of them had gone through very tough times. They went back to their purpose every single time. Um, and that purpose was the mission that allowed them to create the products and services under which they made profits and returned money to shareholders. Target's purpose is to bring everyday good things to families of all incomes. IKEA's perfect purpose is to bring great designs to everyday life all around the world, et cetera, et cetera. Boeing used to have a purpose of being the greatest engineering company in the world and to pioneering commercial aviation. They actually became, and you can read the books on it, a profit-centered company, and that is what created the 737 problem, and they are back to their original purpose. Um, and what I find in all the companies I talk to, including the work I did while I was at Deloitte, is that when companies are underperforming in a, at a big level, they have lost their purpose. Somewhere along the way, they got so focused on the stock market and the investors and the financials that all they want to do is hit the numbers, hit the numbers, hit the numbers, and they weren't innovating, they weren't listening to customers, they weren't getting close to the market, the market was moving over here and they were going over here because they lost their sense of purpose. And usually what they find is the original purpose that put them in business in the first place is still there. It's still the one they need. So that chapter is kind of giving lots and lots of examples of this. But I do think like, you know, like we talked about earlier, Dan, the there's this cycle where companies become really successful and they just think their purpose is to make money and to beat the competition. And that's a you know very dangerous spot to be in, um, in a world that's got so many competitors and so much innovation all the time. 
And it's why it leads so nicely to your seventh uh, um, secret, right? Employee experience, because you're kind of making the point. It's almost right. like a wrap up, right? Well, and, and, like, yeah, and it gets the employees jazzed up and yeah. the employees want to be part of this and you attract the right employees to the company. It has all sorts of benefits. I mean, I, I think if you took a look back and read all the original books on business when, whenever they were written, um, the reason businesses exist in the con in the economy it's not to make money for shareholders. It's to solve problems that we all have. I, you know, electric cars or drugs or, you know, products that we need. Companies invented something that we needed as human beings, as consumers. And that was their purpose. Mm -hmm. That to me is why I think business is kind of a noble profession, if you think about that way. And making money is just an outcome of that. It's not the goal. Well, between a PreSonus mic, uh, a um, Zoom app, a Logitech camera, uh, and a Mac alongside Wi-Fi, uh, we're, we're not having this conversation, you know, 10 years ago, possibly, right? So this is the purpose of business. It's also right. to unite and connect. Okay, last question. You're so generous and kind with your time. Uh, it's the beginning of 2023, Josh. What does the Josh Burson crystal ball say for, yeah. for this upcoming year in, in so much as whether it's irresistible or otherwise? What, what can we look out for, I suppose? Well, I'm going to be publishing a big report on predictions uh, probably in January. Um, I think the big theme for 2023 is that we're going to be in an economy that is slowing. Um, you know, most companies have been growing since the 2008 recession pretty steadily. Mm -hmm. We've had very low interest rates, unlimited access to capital. The stock market went up almost straight up. Yeah. I mean, there were a few interruptions, but not much. And, and now we have inflation, increasing interest rates, the war in Europe, which is very distressing to the companies that are over there, and a lack of labor in the market. There aren't enough workers. People have checked out from the workforce. The size of the workforce is not growing at the rate it was because people aren't having kids. And so we're going to have to live in a world where we don't have unlimited amounts of money, unlimited revenue growth. Every product isn't going to be a home run anymore. So we're going to have to run our companies more like regular old economic companies <laughs> where we make more trade-offs and we look at productivity and we organize around high performing products and we get out of the areas that are not growing. I mean, the world doesn't need 15, you know, streaming services, uh, you know. I, I think the social networking craze has peaked and frankly, it's probably declining. Um, so a lot of the things that we thought had unlimited growth do have limits and we're going to experience them next year. So the CEOs are going to push the CFOs and the CFOs are going to push HR and HR is going to have to figure out not how, not only how to do more with less in HR, that's about, that's a tiny amount of money, but really how can we make this company operate more effectively, more productively, more efficiently with all of the tools we have, we know all the things we need to do. We know about org design. We know about skills. We know about leadership. We know about retention. We know about hiring. We know about internal mobility. All of these things that we know to do in HR are the keys to staying healthy during this slower economic cycle. And so that's what this is all about is, um, you know, using the tools we have in HR to respond to this change. And, and the second thing, of course, for me is continuously developing ourselves in HR. And that's the reason I started the Academy is, um, you know, we're the group that doesn't really have a training department for yeah. us. 
So uh, you guys in the HR groups that are listening to this, um, you need to lean in and learn about all these new disciplines and technologies so that you can be the advisor and the consultant that your company's going to need in the year ahead. And by the way, the other thing that's going to be big is figuring out what hybrid work's really going to be like, which is everybody's a little bit confused about right now. But I think I think that will become very clear in the next year. Well, Josh, it's uh, such a treat. Uh, the book is Irresistible, The Seven Secrets of the World's Most Enduring Employee-Focused Organizations. Where can we find out more about you and, of course, the book? Uh, joshperson.com is the best place to read about me and my stuff. And there's all sorts of information on LinkedIn. Um, and then the book's available on Amazon and you know the, the usual suspect places. <laughs> It's so great to have this chat uh, long overdue for you and I, as we were mentioning in the quote green room, it's probably been about five years since we've seen each other. Uh, just a hat tip to to you, my friend, you've been a pioneer for so long uh, and please keep it up because there are many professionals, not just in HR, the learning and the talent space, but across industries that look to you and your research and your insights and your leadership. And so Josh Burson, just a hat tip. Thanks for everything you've done in the past and looking forward to much more from you in 2023 and beyond, my friend. Thank you, Dan. This has been very, very nice. I appreciate it. All right, folks. Another episode of Leadership Now with me, Dan Pontefract today. An industry icon, Josh Burson. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next time.